0: This is Science Moab, a show exploring science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm your host, Peggy Hodgkins, and today we are talking about fish populations in Lake Powell and how they are being affected by the invasive quagga mussel.
1: Hygrippa is that weird kid who would pretend to be snakes and said I was going to be the greatest snake researcher in the world. I have very clear memories of me saying that jumping around on a trampoline but I am not a snake researcher, I'm a fish researcher.
0: (laughs) That is Nathan St. Andre, who recently completed his thesis in biology at Brigham Young University. Nathan has been studying the effects that the quagga mussel has on fish populations in Lake Powell.
1: So a quagga mussel is a mussel. So think of a little clam. Quagga mussels have little tiny bissel threads, essentially these little tiny threads that allow them to attach to things. So most of our mussels here in the United States don't have that ability, and quagga mussels do have that ability. And so they look like kind of a a white and brown to black striped mussel with these little tiny threads that allow them to attach on to just about any hard surface, and for quagga mussels, even soft surfaces like mud.
0: And from what I understand now, in Utah, these mussels are restricted to Lake Powell for now. How do you suppose they came to be in Lake Powell to begin with?
1: A boater. Somebody at one point had picked up water from another infected reservoir outside the state, either out of Lake Mead or another location, and had it either in their ballast, so at the bottom of the boat where it holds the water to help balance the boat, um, or in their live wells where they keep fish. And they had water sitting in there from an infected lake or reservoir And when they got into Lake Powell, they either dumped, escaped, something happened. And that infected and contaminated water dumped into the lake. And that led to a full colonization eventually of quagga mussels. And what would have been in the water would probably were villagers. It could have been adults that were on the outside of the boat. My suspected hunch though, it was villagers, which are the little tiny baby forms of quagga mussels that are free swimming and they can float around the water column. How
0: long has this been an issue in Lake Powell?
1: Quagga mussels were first detected in Lake Powell in 2012, but there were the the villagers. And I think it was first with DNA um, that they were first identified. And then after they were first identified that way, they eventually found adults, I think either later that year or the the early next year. And they found that over by Walweep, which is the southern end of the lake near Glen Canyon Dam. Yeah. So that's why Lake Powell recently initiated this um, new kind of boat cleaning system that cleans the outside of the boat and it flushes the inside of the boat and really sterilizes the whole thing. So quagga mussels can't escape.
0: The little, very little I know about quagga mussels is that they can remove plankton from the water. So inevitably that is going to hurt the fish. Can you describe that process in more detail?
1: Okay, so let's talk a little bit about some quagga mussel biology. So they do filter feed, so they attach themselves to walls, and in the process of filter feeding, they're filter feeding out, you know, microscopic phytoplankton, so your little plant particles, and and no doubt quagga mussels will eat anything, you know, the the tiny microplankton, uh, the zooplankton that are really tiny within the lake, and so no doubt quagga mussels absorb that. And along the way, they also defecate. And so, and so like all animals, they have to poop. And unlike other animals, uh, quagga mussels will get sediment and other, you know, organic materials that they can't eat. And then they spit that out and they call that pseudo feces. And so quagga mussels have a tendency to take out nutrients out of the pelagic on the lake, which is what we call the, you know, the open water. And then they deposit that in the littoral side of the lake. So the shorelines and dump all these nutrients that they've been gathering, you know, along the shorelines. And so animals that live along the shorelines can suddenly have this big boost of nutrients. And then the animals that live in the open lake suddenly lose all their food source that they're familiar with.
0: So you finished your thesis at the end of last Mm -hmm. year, and you were specifically looking at the effect of quagga mussels on fish in Lake Powell. What were you trying to figure out?
1: So what we were trying to figure out is to see if quagga mussels were having an impact at all. Lake Powell is super complicated. Unlike when you look at something like the great lakes, the great lakes are shield lakes or basin lakes. And so essentially they, they start shallow, they go deep, they go back to shallow. The lake might go up and down inches per year, you know, or, you know, a foot. Right. But when you have Lake Powell, it's, it's long, it's narrow. It has sections that are, you know, 700 feet deep. You have sections that are fairly shallow. you got side basin and channels. And so you, you have this really complicated lake. And the question is, is Lake Powell like the other lakes? Is, do the fish respond the same way as predicted in other lakes? And so that's kind of the question we were going out of our way to answer. You know, Will the fish respond in the predicted manner that we thought they would, that we've kind of seen in other lakes? And so that was what the core of my thesis was about.
0: How did you study? What, what uh, methods did you use to, to kind of analyze fish populations and whether or not they had been affected by the mussel? Yeah.
1: So there's a couple ways you can do this. The one way you can look at it is with growth and abundance. And so are the fish growing the same? Are there as many fish? That's one way to look at it. And then the other way is to look at the food chain and, the, and the, what we call the trophic structure of the lake. And the way you look at the trophic structure, so who eats who and how does energy move around, we use something called stable isotopes. If you know how to read stable isotopes, they essentially write the world and they write how, you know, the way they're coded into animals is looking at how, how the world moves energy around and kind of, you know, who eats who. And so what I did from my research was to look at isotopes in fish. And so I use carbon and nitrogen. So the stable isotopes So carbon is delta 13 C and nitrogen is delta 15 N. And so you look at these isotopes of it and different animals will have different isotope signatures based on where they're at in the food web and where they eat. And so we use, we use that data to help kind of build a a picture. And so what it would look like, so here, now I need you to get get on your creativity cap here, take a pencil, uh, X by Y axis, the y-axis you, you write your nitrogen, on your x-axis you write your carbon. And so on the left side is your, uh, in freshwater lakes like Lake Powell, is your open water, and on the right side is your shoreline. So who, where do the people take get their energy from? Do they get it from near the shore or from the open water? And then the higher you go up on the y-axis you go, the more top predator you are. And so if you're at the very top of it, you're probably something like a striped bass, and if you're at the very bottom of that y-axis, you're going to be something like algae or zooplankton or, you know, little tiny plankton eaters. Right. And so you you can build the food web. Literally, you can build a food web. So, that, you know, and using uh, some cool little models, you can actually say who eats who within the food web. And you can say, how is that food web getting shuffled around? And then you can start asking questions why. And so that's what I did with stabilized isotopes is, you can actually build this food web. You can literally see it, and then you can see it move around, and you can start poking at that and start asking, you know, why is this moving?
0: So basically, yeah, you're looking at the the nitrogen, the carbon. I mean, the ratios.
1: Yes, ratios. Yep. So,
0: and basically, if you have a, you have a trend there telling you what kind of population your fish are, then all of a sudden it moves in one direction or the other, and you can surmise from that. What's changed? What's happened? Yeah.
1: So if, for example, if you have something like a bluegill and bluegill like to eat when they're older, like to eat, you know, zooplankton. So the little guys out there in the open water. So when you look at a bluegill in your isotope space, they look like somebody who eats farther out on the left side of that graph. And if suddenly he shifts over to the right and all the bluegill the next year are eating right on the shoreline, you're like, wait a minute, what's going on there? Or vice versa. And so that's, that's what you can do with isotopes you can suddenly look at a fish and you know you you catch all these fish you dissect them you get some isotope samples and you know one year to the next all of a sudden the fish are moving around all over the place that's kind of an indicator that something weird is going on because you would assume a fish from year to year is going to have roughly the same diet but if they're having dramatically different diets their isotopes are going to look different from year to year and it you, you starts begging the question, why in the world are the fish suddenly dramatically changing from year to year in their food reutilization? But we use muscle because muscle is something called turnover rate. If we used liver only, let's say it might be only a five day period where you'd get a look at, but when we use muscle, you get a 30 day period. So it, it levels out the wiggle that comes in isot- isotopes. And yeah. so we used
0: muscle. What did you find out? What did the isotopes tell you?
1: So we, we broke up the lake in half because, so if you've ever seen Lake Powell on a map and if you've ever been there, you'll realize it's really long and narrow. And then, you know, it's long being over, you know, about a hundred miles long or longer. And at the very top is where the Colorado comes in and at the very bottom is where Lake Powell, you know, Glen Canyon Dam is. Well, how that is distributed, that, that length and sh- kind of shape and where the nutrients come from, which is from the river creates kind of this weird gradient going down river. And there's some historical evidence of this. Um, When you look at historical evidence, the lower part of the lake has less fish. And if you go to the upper part of the lake, there's more fish. Hmm. And so we figured, you know, because there is this difference between up and down lake, we'll split the lake in half. And we said everything from this end is the upper part and everything from this end is the lower part. The evidence looks like when we look at it, the fish in the lower part seem to be affected and the fish in the northern part don't seem to be bothered that much by the presence of quagga mussels and so a handful of fish in the southern part of the lake began to decrease in their nitrogen level so they they started looking like they were going down as a predator and so they were instead of being the top dog they were slowly notching their way down and and that was over the course of a few years and then the the fish in the northern lake either returned to to kind of their pre-quagga mussel invasion level or went up and so they actually became more the, the bigger, bad, or top dog of the lake. And so you began to see this divergence between the upper lake and the lower lake isotopic. And so we, we began to see this divergence within the lake itself. And so it seems like the southern part of the lake is being affected, while the northern part of the lake is, you know, seeming to come away unscathed or even benefited.
0: Can you surmise why? Why, why that, that differentiation?
1: In the paper, we 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 made a couple best guesses. The the best one is Lake Lake Powell has a Colorado River flowing into it, and as being someone from Moab, when you look at the Colorado River, is it clear or is it silty? It's yes. silty, right? And that silt comes in, and there's some studies that before quagga mussels came out back west, they they you know took a tank, chucked a bunch of dirt in there, and saw and and tested to see what happened to the quagga mussels and come to find out as the more sediment is in the water column it actually affects the way quagga mussels can filter feed because if they're trying to filter feed and they're catching more dirt than they are catching zooplankton they're spending a lot of energy to get nothing out of it and so essentially the high sediment load that comes into lake powell chokes out the quagga mussels and so they don't do nearly as good in the upper parts of the lake and so when you have a high runoff here and you can you can actually look up this these images on nasa You can see where on a good water year, that sediment plume that comes down there and pushes all that dirt down in Lake Powell, that sediment plume, you know, makes it down about halfway before it settles out. While when you look at that sediment plume, it never really makes it all the way to the bottom. So the clocking muscles in the bottom never get a significant amount of sediment dumped on them to keep them from filter feeding. While the sediment and the nutrient in the upper part of the lake, you know, it'll come in, it'll interfere with the quagga mussels ability to feed and they might have periods where they're not even feeding at all because there's so much dirt in the water and you i think this is what's happening is that you're getting this effect where quagga mussels are just being inhibited in the northern part of the lake and you know they're not being affected at all and so that's we're seeing this divergence within the the system where we we see southern fish you know decreasing trophic level while the northern fish seem to be either increasing or being or not changing at all
0: so, in, with your results, uh, did you see any variation by fish species?
1: We looked at striped bass, bluegill, walleye, smallmouth bass, and green sunfish. Those were our five fish that we were looking at. And back again on that X by Y axis. And when you look at that through time, uh, when you look at nitrogen, kind of one of our, our big suspecting things is that our most pelagic fish. Were going to be the ones that were most affected and striped bass were our most plagic fish then we expected you know a, a pretty strong divergence. we'll come to find out within our results the way that the way they have presented here is that striped bass weren't actually all that affected by the presence of clogged mussels. when you look at them through time they start to diverge so in 2018-2019 they're about the same but by 2019 and so we we expected there actually be more dramatic effect on striped bass, and striped bass seemed to be pretty much unaffected by quagga mussels. Kind of our two other fish that seemed to, to show the most effect were bluegill, and bluegill we suspected they might have uh, an impact, but when, and when it came to actually look at it, bluegill on the nitrogen, so their trophic level are they top predator or decreasing? And the northern part of the lake was this actual kind of gradual rise. While in the southern part of the lake, it was a fall and then stabilized. And so you, you can imagine if you look at it on a X by Y axis, imagine you drawing a sideways V, and you see how the northern fish are going up and the southern fish are going down. And you actually see that pattern repeat over and over and over again. And then the one fish that we actually expect the least amount of change on was green sunfish. The green sunfish are, are a very, very kind of littoral shoreline fish, and they should be benefited. From the presence of quagga mussels. And in the northern region of the lake, they almost stay flat. Their, their isotope signature doesn't change at all. But in the southern level, the southern region of the lake, they actually drop year by year as you, as you go through time. And so it seems like you see this tr- decrease in trophic level, decrease in trophic position over and over again in that southern region. And the one fish that we suspect to have the least effect on, green sunfish, actually seem to have a pretty moderate effect on they actually decreased by almost in a full trophic level between 2017 and 2019 trophic level is the next step on the food chain so when you go from a plant to a plant eater that's a trophic level when you go from a meat eater that eats the plant eater that's the next trophic level
0: i mean i'm curious how you isolated out some other factors that may have affected the fish's isotopes in other words could their feeding habits been affected by changes in water
1: level, say? Yes, there, there is some chance to that. And that is part of one of the challenges we we're looking at. There There is a chance that the water level does affect things. One way in which you, you help kind of tease that out is you look at the, the base of the food chain. So you, if you look at algae that live on the shorelines or near the shorelines, you can look at the base structure of the lake's food chain. And you ask the question, is this changing too? If the base structure is changing, you know, it's going to echo up and down the food web, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so we looked at that in our study and it, algae didn't seem to change hardly at all. There's some variation from year to year and region to region, but some of that gets removed when you help correct for things like um, calcium carbonate. You know, if, you're that, if you look at Lake Powell, you see all the white walls, that's all the calcium carbonate that gets um, deposited within the lake. And so we, we can actually remove that with um, acid. And so I did a bunch of acid washing on, on a bunch of things. We looked at that and it seems like the base structure of the lake wasn't wobbling around. So if the base structure is not wobbling around, that means, you know, the things that eat the base structure aren't wobbling around. Yeah. And so that's, that's one way in which we helped look at and try to correct for that potential that, you know, maybe that the, the fish are changing their diet for some other reason.
0: And so you are also a professional photographer. Do you ever see, you know, pairing the uh, science and photography into any kind of a a academic pursuit or financial pursuit?
1: (laughs) Well, I do already the the financial pursuit I'm doing right now. I I mostly do landscape photography, but I, I try to get involved wherever I can with my photography when it comes to like conservation needs. And so, but one thing I have done, is use my photos in combination with a little bit of writing to to talk about some of the issues and so one of the things that I actively advocate against right now is this northern quarter over here in St. George which they're trying to build right through the heart of the Red Cliff Desert Reserve because that affects um, desert tortoises. So I I went out there and I talked to the biologist and I photographed us going out there and doing surveys through an area that got burned here this past summer and going through and looking for tortoises out there and and photographed uh, one of the the dead tortoises that got burned and caught up in that wildfire. And so then they, you know, wrote about the tortoises being, you know, killed by the wildfires and how, you know, the more roads you put in an area, the more likely you are to spark fires. Once the tortoises get affected, once that road comes through, you know, the fires are going to come. And when the fires come, you're going to cause tortoise habitat to decrease. I have tried to use my photography in combination with that, and then escalante escalante is a place I've, I've spent a lot of time using my photography to help that area so i actively use my photography to either promote the conservation of escalante or like use my images for fundraising for the the partners out there who are there trying to protect it
0: well i think that's a great idea yeah well nathan thank you so much for talking with science moab and uh i hope, hope to hear more from you
1: Okay, I I hope to be around more to to share some cool things.
0: To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab Media is by Sophia Fisher, newsletter by Rhonda Cook, our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.